0: stories. I love telling stories. I love the craft of it, of figuring out um, how to put it together, where to start the story because I just love taking people along on a journey. Um, that's why I like speaking because every chance to speak is a chance to tell a story. Um, it's a lot of fun for me. And we have been telling a big story here in Storyline. Uh, we started off our year um, talking about the story of god right and uh this big picture thing and uh, we had charles who as a, a seminary trained pastor came up with alliterative titles for all of our lessons i think that i think that's a class they take
1: Is that semester.
0: it does it does
1: <laughs>
0: yeah right and so we have um, over the course of this year we've gone over the creation The crisis, (laughs) the covenant, Christ, the church, and today we get to talk about culmination. (laughs) (laughs) But what does that mean? And so actually, before we get into that, I, I, I have a nit to pick with the, the whole structure of this thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you get when you get me. Um, I'm going to sit over there. The problem is, like, when you have these distinct things, um, it feels like something that you could, like, put on a timeline, right? Like, there are these, like, historical periods, and right now we're in the period of the church and we're waiting for the culmination and Christ <laughs> happened before that and before that was the time of covenant um, and i got to say when i when i when i thought it out like that it just kind of feels shallow it doesn't really ring true to me and what i mean by that is like i can look around the world right now and in different places i can see Christ and i can see the church and i can see covenant And I also see a lot of dumpster fire everywhere, too. Like, it's all happening at once. And so it brings up this question, how can we tell the story of an infinite God in a framework that has a beginning, a middle, and an end? So, this morning, I would like to propose a different shape. I know we like our shapes here. (laughs) Who here knows what a fractal is? Miles. There. Okay, a couple people. So apologies because I'm going to butcher the definition. If you want the real mathematical definition, go look it up. Math Wikipedia is uh, just an amazing time suck. Um, but for my purposes this morning, let's just say that it's a big, complex shape that is composed of smaller instances of the same shape or of similar shapes over and over again, infinitely. I'm going to give you a demonstration here. I'm going to show um, what it is. And I want you, basically, the only animation that you see right here is it's zooming in. So all of the detail that continues to be exposed has always been there. It's been there the entire time. We're not changing anything. Nothing's being added. We're just continuing to zoom in. So I want you to notice all of the complexity that you didn't see before and that you continue to see as we continue to zoom in. I also want you to notice the similar patterns that you see um, as we go. Some of these like bigger blobs and smaller blobs, some of these curves, these little fingers that come out. You see it's not exactly the same thing, but it's a very similar patterns over and over again that keep composing this larger shape. This, to me, is what the story of God really looks like. Every Zoom level has a similar pattern, right? You've got togetherness with God. You've got separation from God and a longing to be reunited with God. It's not a circle. It's not the exact same story being told (coughs) over and over and over and over again. No, every telling of this story builds on the ones that come before it. Every single shape in here is yet another unique expression, unique experience, unique telling of the story. We can zoom all the way in on on an individual person, right? Who here has experienced times close to God and times separated from God and longing to be close? We can look at individual stories in the Bible. The, The book of Judges, the way that's, the way that that book works is you have God and His people together and they're prosperous. And then the people turn away from God and they suffer. And then they come back to God and God raises up from among them a savior and they rally together and things and they're prosperous again. And that story repeats itself in the book of Judges over and over and over again. Each one building on the one that came before it. And all of those little stories build back up into the bigger story of Israel, right? They are in this incredible kingdom. King David wins all these victories. King Solomon builds this magnificent city with this magnificent temple, and their boundaries are are bigger than they've ever been. It's wonderful. Then they turn from God, and the kingdom shrinks and breaks, and they're conquered, and they're taken into captivity, and they're separated from God, and they're exiled, and they long to be returned. It's the same story that's continuing to be retold over and over again, every time building with what came before it. The other important thing um, to note about the story is that where you are in it affects how you tell it. And by that I mean like when we try to tell the story, we are not an objective third party. Mm that can go over here and go, yeah, I can see where it starts over here, and I can see what happened to these people. We're in it. And our position in it affects the way that we tell it. Um, When you tell a story, and it's a story that you're in, you are by definition always in the middle of it. And so when you tell, you look backwards to explain how we got to where we are today, and then you look forward to what we hope, to where we hope to end up. But what does that look like? What informs our hope? (coughs) Well, how did the Israelites do it? Let's go back into that story that I just told, and let's go back into that time of captivity. They're in Babylon. Their temple has been destroyed. Their home has been destroyed. They are living as captives, as slaves. Things are not going well for them, I think what they did is they looked... The way that they knew how to look forward, what they were excited about, was actually informed by looking back in their own history. I imagine the story that they told was something like this. You know what, guys? We've been here before. Our ancestors were slaves in Egypt. And one day, a shepherd named Moses encountered God through a burning bush... And he said, Moses, I've heard the cries of my people. I've heard their prayers and I'm going to send you to Egypt and we're going to go to Egypt and we are going to set them free. And they do. They go to Egypt and God gives this amazing demonstration of his power over not just the rulers in Egypt, but over the very gods that they worship. And, it, and the way that that story winds up is that the people are set free. And the Egyptians give them all of their treasure so they leave free and they leave wealthy and victoriously. And they go and they march out to the mountain and they receive the law and they go and they receive the promised land. And that is the same God that we serve today in captivity. So turn back to God. Stay faithful to God and he will hear our prayers. I believe that's how they told the story at that time. They looked back to inform how they looked forward. So I want to ask you guys this morning, how can us, how can looking backward into our own stories, our personal stories or a broader story, inform what we can look forward to or how we look
2: forward? I love um, the... the Saying or kind of observation, it's been said a number of different ways, but that basically history is lived going forward but understood looking backward. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, it is often by reflecting on what has happened, in our own past, the past of our country, the past of our planet, that we understand some of the bigger themes. You know, it's easy for us to go back and study a historical event World War II, the American Revolution, uh, Jesus dying on the cross we forget, and we can see it with some amount of clarity now, because we can see the events, we can have intelligent scholars write up the major narrative themes and movements and all of these trends. We forget how messy and unorganized and complex it felt, a lot like this on the screen, uh, at the time that people were living through it. And so if we only live looking forward, uh, we, we sort of ourselves to be able to understand perhaps something about the world around us by looking in the back in the past. That's good, thanks. Who else? Uh, I
3: mean, I share a lot of this when goes, but uh, one of the things that got me through some of the harder or points in my life in the last five years, well, especially the first and first miscarriage, was
4: looking back as to how God
1: have been there for me and other in other mm-hmm. books, and saying, "Okay, if well, he can do that, then then he can do something now," and it helps bolster my trust. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I think what is disturbing to me, staring this thing over and over um, again. <laughs> <laughs> um, what disturbs me in all this is recently. It goes back to a lesson you taught a year ago, I think, um, is that our perspective, our perspective, my perspective, mm-hmm. is not that of the exiles. <laughs> it's not that of the, the slaves. Okay. My perspective is Pharaoh. My perspective is Caesar. My perspective is the king of Babylon. And so this over, this repetition, this going back into the story and looking forward through the story is a confrontation me and, and how in the world uh, do I let that challenge me and mm-hmm. change me mm-hmm. to where you know, I can't totally change my circumstance in that, in that being born in privilege as I but how does that affect me and what do I do about it, how do I enter into the story as one with humility mm-hmm. and with generosity and with hospitality as one, and as been a privileged person.
0: So it's a confrontational story for me. Thank you. So God's people looked back to the Exodus to give them a template for what they could hope for. And we know through historical and biblical accounts that they were conquered by the Babylonians, Babylonians were conquered by the Medes, the Medes were conquered by the Persians, and the Persians, they let the people go home. They, 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 the, the, God's people were allowed to march back home out of captivity, return to their promised land, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, rebuild the temple of the Lord, reinstitute all of the, all of the sacrifices and everything. And they did it, I and mean, you can imagine the excitement in those people as they got to go back and as they started the project, and even as they finished rebuilding and everything. And and then it's done. And well, it's I mean it's fine I guess, but it just doesn't feel the same. It doesn't feel like what they were they thought it would be, right? Like the temple is nice to have again, but is it as nice as it was when it was Solomon's temple? And yeah, we're living in Jerusalem now, but we're still kind of under Persian rule. Like, they're still in charge. We're just kind of, kind of living under them. It doesn't really... Is this really the big deliverance that God was promising us? Is this really what we've been hoping for? It doesn't feel right. We also know, from history, that the Persians don't last very long, that the Greeks conquer them. And what was the Greek Empire known for as they conquered everything they could? Does anyone? Hellenization.
1: Hellenization.
0: As someone in the 21st century, I appreciate Hellenization because it unified the language and it, it unified the culture enough so that we have written records and something that can be translated now. And so you begin to have more detail about what happened in history. But think about what it was like to be a Jewish person living in Judea, in Jerusalem, as the Greeks show up to Hellenize it, right? I mean, what do they do? Well, you have to speak Greek now. You have to lose your language. They're going to build temples to their own gods, and they're going to build them big so that they kind of overshadow the temple of the Lord. Um, They're going to do other Greek cultural things here that take away from your own Jewish culture. And the kings and the rulers were not that good to deal with. There's this one guy. His name was Antiochus IV... Um, he he came in and set up a system where it's like, okay, you guys want to have religion, that's fine. He wants to be high priest. Whoever pays me the most money gets to be high priest. So you have this nice corruption system that's been injected into the priesthood by this guy. There was an ill-fated uprising against him at one point, and he really cracked down. So they made observing the Sabbath illegal. Um, they destroyed as much of the Torah scrolls as they could get their hands on. Um, they built an altar to Zeus in the temple of the Lord and then sacrificed a pig on it. So they made it illegal to practice Judaism and they did everything that they could to make a mockery of this religion. And this story right here brings me to what I consider to be one of the most fascinating books in all of scripture. And it's the book of Daniel. And I'm fascinated by the book of Daniel for so many reasons. Um, And we can talk... Odd infinitum about that later if you want to. But for what I want to talk about today is the... It's like a lot of the books in the Bible. It's, it was made up of stories that were told and compiled over different periods of time. And the best that scholars can figure is that when they finally put the whole thing together and said this is going to be the book of Daniel, and it's the same one that we have today, that that happened right around this period of time under the Greek occupation. So what that tells me is that these are the stories that these people were telling. And that's going to give us a window into how they viewed the world. So the first half of the book is a collection of stories, and there's a lot of famous stories in there. Daniel and the Lion's Den comes to mind. These stories, the thing that they have in common is they're all stories of people who are continuing to be faithful to God in the face of official oppression, Right, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den because they made it illegal to pray to God and he did it anyway and he was thrown into the lions and there's many stories like this so there's one in particular that's, that's really really interesting to me for just one, one key phrase and so I want to look at this this is in Daniel 3 it's a story of three guys Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego basically the king built this giant statue of himself and he said now the law is we're going we're to play this music and you have to bow down and worship this statue And if you don't do it, you're going to die. And they refuse. And so here they are in front of the king. And he's like, why are you doing this? We're going to throw you into the fire and you're going to be burned up. And this is what they say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But... Even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. But even if he doesn't? Where does that come from? <clears throat> even if he doesn't save us? You're not going to find that language in Exodus. You're not going to see it in 1 Kings. That was all about, if we're faithful to God, he's faithful to us. This is like, we're going to be faithful to God and even if he doesn't save us. These are people that have lived their entire lives trying to be faithful to God and also have lived their entire lives under persecution. They've never known... like Miraculous deliverance from God is not a normal part of their reality. So they need and they have a new way to tell the story. Which brings me to the second half of the book of Daniel. So the first half is stories, and they're good stories. The second half is wacky.
1: <laughs>
0: they needed a way to tell this story. They needed something new to inform and describe their hope. Because this whole idea of, well, we're going to get to return to the promised land, that happened, and it, wasn't, all what it, it wasn't, wasn't what it was cracked up to be, and it's still pretty bad now. And so this entire new genre of literature shows up. Where they tell the story not in well, then we did, not in very concrete, you know, terms of this happened and then this happened and then God did this, but in these very big pictorial um, cosmic tales, they call this style of literature today. Scholars call it apocalyptic literature from the Greek work, a word for which is apocalypse, which translates to revelation. In other words, something was concealed and we're now going to reveal it. In other words, you look around the world right now and your world doesn't make any sense. You've been sent to your promised land, you've been faithful to your God, and life is still terrible. It doesn't make any sense. You're not seeing the whole picture. We're going to peel back the curtain and show you there's something else going on. And these types of stories have some commonalities, right? There's, there are, there's almost always lots of beasts that have these really grotesque features about them with horns and things. There's lots of symbols that mean something. There are numbers that have significance. There's heavenly forces and a giant battle of good versus evil actually happening. Um, It's usually a vision that is presented to a person, and so the person is telling it back to you in first person. I saw this, and then I saw this, and I saw this. And then there's usually like an angel or somebody from this otherworldly realm that's there with the person to answer questions. Because... The thing doesn't make any sense. And this is a style of writing that they used to recontextualize and to tell their story in a way to try to make it make a little bit more sense. So I'm going to give you a little, bit of taste, a little taste of this so that you can see what it's like and then we'll talk about it. This is from Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the other, came out. That's still going good. Okay. So the first one was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. And I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. And it was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. And after that, I looked, and there was another beast, and it looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a great bird. And this beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. And after that, in my vision, I looked, and there was a fourth beast, and it was terrifying and frightening and very powerful And it had large iron teeth. And it crushed and devoured its victims and it trampled underfoot whatever was left. And it was different from all the other beasts. And it had ten horns. And that must have been a very striking detail because then Daniel says, While I was thinking about the horns, a little one there before me was another horn. A little one came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And this horn had eyes, like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And if you're listening to this or reading this, and you're going, what? You're in really good company. Because if you skip down a little bit, he goes, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me.
4: No kidding. No kidding.
0: So I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of this, right? This is the stand-in to try to explain it, right? And so what this guy basically does is he says, okay, here's the deal, Daniel. The beasts are nations. They're kingdoms that have each had their chance to rule and have authority. And they're, they're pretty mean and grotesque, and they have oppressed God's people, right? Four beasts, four kingdoms. Babylon, Mede, Persia, Greece. Oh, we're retelling the story in a weird way, okay? And he's got this one over here. Greece has ten horns on it. Horns usually signify some sort of king or ruler or leader. So you've got all these kings. And you have the little one that pops up. And it has a mouth on it. Let me tell you a little bit. I mentioned this guy, Antiochus IV. That was his name... He called himself Theus Epiphanes, which translates to God manifest. He said, I'm God. He had a mouth on him. He went into Jerusalem and he did all these things that mocked God. And it's interesting, when he came to power, he wasn't the next in line. The current king had to die. His son had to go be imprisoned and his other son had to die so that this guy got to be powerful. So three had to drop so that one could rise. It's stuff that people that had been paying attention to current events would pick up on. The way we can read a political cartoon today But what it really does Is it tells the story that they know In this new context What it does Is it says Yeah, God can see The suffering of his people right now They can see He sees the oppression So what's he going to do about it? Well So Daniel asks the angel Because I mean if you've got an angel here That's what you do And the angel basically says, yeah, this guy's got a mouth on him and he's causing lots of problems for you. And he will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people. um, and And the holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. But the court, the heavenly court, God's court will sit and his power, this little horn, his power will be taken away and completely destroyed Forever. So what he says is, yeah, he's tormenting you right now. And it's going to happen for a time, times, half a time. I don't know. It's going to happen for a limited time. A period of time that's going to end. And then his power is going to be taken away. For a while? No. Forever. It's gone. And that's what they do. They look at this story and they say, this world doesn't make any sense. And there's some stuff that is just unexplained. So we're going to peel back and we're going to tell this bigger story of good versus evil, of God fighting the evil forces, of these rulers that are coming up here and for whatever reason have authority. But we can see that in the end, God's not going to let it stand. And he's going to destroy them and it's going to be permanent. Now there's another problem, though, that we have with with, with this context of the story. If you zoom back out and you talk about um, nations as if they were people right and you say well yeah God rewarded Israel and then God punished Israel and then God brought Israel back and reconciled it all right you can see it, it kind of it, it almost sounds fair but then when you zoom back in and you see again the lives of people that they were born into persecution and they lived as faithfully as they could all the way through it and they died still in persecution you're like God that is not fair it's not right. And then meanwhile, you also look and you see the corrupt priest in the synagogue. And you see all of these evil people that seem to just have it made. That are, that are born rich. That die rich. And you're like, this world doesn't make any sense. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. Well, God speaks to that too in this story, in this telling of the story. Because at the very end, in Daniel chapter 12, the big battle between good and evil has happened. And good wins. Good always wins. God is going to win. That's, that's been a constant through all of this. But then what happens? In verse 2, chapter 12, it says, the multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth, the dead, will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And I don't want you to get bogged down in the details of of everlasting life and everlasting punishment and all of that. What I want you to focus on is there are people that live their entire lives in an unjust system because God was doing whatever he was doing. And when we get back, when he comes back, and when he finally wins, when everything is finally taken care of, those people will be raised back to life to get to live in this new life under a new just system with God at the center of it. It's the same story that we tell over and over and over again that each telling builds on the one that came before. Each telling adapts to its context. It has to answer the new questions that come with the new situation. The patterns, it's still going. This thing goes for hours. The patterns are the same, right? Together with God, separation from God, a longing to be reunited with God. But the details about what that looks like, about what informs what we look forward to, that that changes with every telling. So how do we tell the story today? What are we looking forward to? This is my question to you. What do we think it's going to look like and mean for us to be reunited with God?
2: You know, Ted, I was kind of thinking as we were watching this fractal and trying not to be distracted by it, the <laughs> to this morning, and I was just kind of thinking for a minute, too, about uh, Benoit Mandelbrot, who is mm-hmm. the father of fractal geometry. And He's read the Wikipedia page. He's <laughs> read the Wikipedia page, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if, if you read Mandelbrot's Wikipedia page, you read that he was a Polish Jew, Um, who was hidden during World War II with his family member in France. Um, And during this time of persecution and hiding, um, he couldn't go out much, he couldn't do hardly anything except read in a basement where he was sequestered from the occupying forces. And it was during that time um, of suffering that he basically became a prodigy in mathematics because what he was locked away with was math textbooks. Um, And so out of this period of suffering um, came basically this new form of geometry that has changed lots of things. You can read the Wikipedia page for details, Um, (laughs) including this beautiful image that we have in front of us. And so to me, this is, is this classic tension that we have in the story of God, of of this period of intense suffering and atrocity like World War II, um, and you think, where could you be God in the middle of this, you know, when people are dying and and terrible things are happening? And yet, if we take that macro story and we zoom in and we look at little pieces of it, we find beauty and creation and kingdom happening. Um, and, And to me, that tension is the story of our separation from God because of our sinfulness. Um, And so what I look forward to is the period of time when we're reunited and Mm -hmm. and we get to have the fractals without the suffering. Mm -hmm. Thanks.
1: Anyone else? What's the question?
0: (laughs) I'm sorry, are you talking? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah! (laughs) How do we tell the story? How do we def- how do we explain what we're looking forward to?
3: Mm-hmm. Yes. I, so
4: I remember I watched The Matrix a lot when I was in high school. This one does. I guess I'm spoiling it because it's so old. You, <laughs> <laughs> you deserve it at this point. <laughs> <laughs> <We just laughs> <problem now>. um, <laughs> but you know, it's a story about like a world beyond
3: our world. Mm-hmm. and at the end Neo is like I'm going to show these people something they've never seen I'm going to show them a the world without you without your control because he's talking to the machines that are enslaving humans behind the scenes and um, um, and then the story goes on and essentially like, it turns out that Neo has had like all these predecessors and it's just been another form of control that this story that someone is going to save us is just another form of control mm. um, and it was interesting to me because years later, you know, the Wachowski brothers who wrote and directed it both came out as trans women. And so you can kind of see in the story the way that they were think like, looking forward in their lives and sort of peeling back this layer of gender that they felt like society had put on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of feel like they got to the other side or they started to make their journey and they realized, oh man, there's another journey on the other side of this journey. Mm-hmm. Like, when are we going to get to a place where we feel Comfortable because I think even like as a trans woman I can't all like, hear stories about how then they face even more persecution than they did before mm-hmm. they transitioned or things like that and I feel like their story kind of ended up having this hopeless ending or the way that they felt in the middle of it was that this is just hopeless like we're keep looking for something on the other side and, and then that turns out to be a mirage and sometimes that's how I in my own life, but I do look and I just I want to choose to believe that there is a happy ending or that there is going to be a time of justice where we do get to live in like this freedom or that other people who've been to get to live in this freedom because I feel like this is the way that the world looks at stories too, this fractal they look mm-hmm. at it but always see like a sad ending yeah. mm-hmm. and I, I want to choose not to always see a sad ending because I mean that's, I don't know
4: but
1: maybe it's just Did that you? I want to, mm-hmm. but... Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And the danger, to piggyback off of that, the danger is to see this as some sort of aria di You know, we turn to the beginning, and it's a theater of the absurd. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, an play. And everything mm-hmm. just keeps going back to the beginning, and it's but it's not a good story. It's a bad story. Yeah. It just keeps getting repeated but that's where I think the fractal somewhat breaks in, is that, of course, as all metaphors do, uh, because there is an input in time, or outside of time, that God is leading toward is in the be this moment, where it's all going to be brought together uh, under, Israel, under His reign, under His rule. This revelation and, well, And, and all we're <coughs> pointing toward is that God will dwell with His people. Uh, mm-hmm. or, notes in that, that translation that you read that God would be people mm-hmm. you know, with people mm-hmm. in general uh, the gates will always be open yeah. uh, there will be always this opportunity uh, <coughs> to be, uh, of a with God uh, and that's the hopeful part of this for me is that yes there's always this case of of uh, rebellion uh, rebellion exile deliverance ever and ever again, but in the end of life, God is when we bring it all together, uh, you know, it's going to be a the world ever since so, so the beginning of time of this. Yeah. So for me, growing up, I'm um, even now. I don't really, like, I've
4: never thought about heaven, or like, that's never been a motivating factor for my faith. like, oh, when I die, like, this is what's going to happen, or like. It's just hard for me to like look that far into the future because I'm like, how do you know? You don't know. You can't prove it to me. Like you don't know. Um, but what has been helpful for me, especially when I'm looking at things like systemic racism within the criminal justice system, like how can I, you know, it's like me trying to change the economy, like one person trying to change this like giant system. But what's been helpful is to <coughs> see. Like, how the kingdom of heaven is here now. Like, like we're already, like we're already in it. Like, we're already, we already have access to this, this alternate history where we just have to see it and we have to choose to participate in it. Um, and so it's those individual interactions. It's the, um, like, helping one person seeing one person seeing one city do something. Like, that. those are the things that kind of developed motivate me
0: to keep being hopeful. He's trying to see the kingdom now, because mm-hmm. it is here, like, mm-hmm. God is dwelling with us. He's not here for us to participate. Mm. Thanks. We'll probably get out of time anyway. You're fine. God, we thank you for your story. This amazing story that continues to be told over and over again and in new ways and continues to be lived in new ways. God, we thank you for our place in this story. And we help. We ask for your help in understanding our place in it and recognizing our context. And we ask for your help and your clarity and vision to see what comes next. God, uh, give us hope. Give us hope for a better world. Give us hope for real justice. Give us hope for you residing here for there being no question, no evil, no unfairness, and for everything to be made right. God, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.